Hi, producer Todd here. Just wanted to say thank you for listening to this podcast of Classical Classroom. We hope you enjoy the shows, all of them. If you have missed any of them, they are all available on Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, TuneBack, TuneOver, Undercast, Overcast. You get the picture. They're everywhere, hopefully. If not, let us know, and we'll put them there. And when you're there, we would love for you to rate and review us. We love feedback. So thank you very much for listening. It helps us, and it helps classical music and classical classroom. Rule the world! <laughs> okay, enjoy the show. My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... But I really want to learn. So... Every week on this show, a classical music expert will give me a piece of classical music they think I should know, and then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the classical classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the classical classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today is Hilary Hahn, who is joining us from Carnegie Hall Studio. Hilary is a violinist, recording artist, a hilarious writer. Uh, she started playing violin when she was four, and she was admitted into the Curtis Institute of Music at the age of 10. She'd completed her credits to graduate by the time she was 16, but she was like, no, I'm just going to stay here and learn some more stuff. Uh, by the time she graduated at 19, she'd already soloed with quite a few major orchestras uh, and was a full-time touring musician. She's released uh, 15, now I guess her latest CD makes 16 recordings on Deutsche Grammophon and Sony. Um, and according to her website, has played 1,437 concerts. She travels all over the world playing with orchestras and doing recitals and uh, writes about all kinds of great things on her website. I particularly like the favorites list. Hillary, welcome to the Classical Classroom. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. What are you going to be teaching me about today? Well, I thought we could talk about the Violin Concerto Number no. 4 by Henri Vierton, who is a Belgian composer and violinist. That sounds awesome. And this is one of the, he plays, or <laughs> this composition is one of the pieces on your latest CD, which I was it just is. listening to, yes. and it's very, very cool. So so tell us um, about who he was and uh, kind of where did he live, all of that good stuff. Sure. Well, Vierton, actually, if you if you translate it from French, means old times. So um, <laughs> I don't know if that has anything to do with his personality, but um, his name was Henri, which is French for Henry, and Vierton, which is old times. So he's Henry old times. <laughs> and old I times. just think that's funny. It takes <laughs> the mystery out of it. Um, he was, as I mentioned, Belgian. There is a strong tradition of what's known as a Franco-Belgian school of violin playing. I think now the lines are a little more blurred between styles, but it had to do with certain heritage of of teaching and a way of approaching the instrument. Mm -hmm. And there is another school of violin playing called the Russian School, which produced a lot of the really famous Russian violinists of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. But the irony is that Virton himself, this Franco-Belgian violinist, was 
responsible for founding the violin school in St. Petersburg. So <laughs> <laughs> in a way, the lines were always kind of blurred between the styles. Interesting. He was a composer. He wrote multiple violin concertos. That's why this one is called number four, because it was the fourth one. <laughs> he also wrote a fifth one, and he wrote a lot of other works. He's not played as often as many composers, which is why you may not recognize his name, but he was a really important character in the development of violin playing. He taught a legendary Belgian violinist named uh, Eugène Isaïe, who was actually my teacher's teacher. Wow. And he, Virton dates back to the 1800s. And so mm. if you trace anything back to that time, you can see how much influence it might have had on the present day. So who were his contemporaries? Well, anyone who's interested in violin repertoire in particular may recognize the name Vinyovsky, Henrik Vinyovsky, who is a Polish violinist. It's kind of surprising to tie a lot of people together in terms of their their era. Basically, anyone who was writing and working in the 19th century mm-hmm. was a contemporary of Virton. And when you look at Germany, Germany was very active in uh, composers at that time. And so a lot of people in that time period who were famous were German or French or Polish or Belgian or British or, you know, a lot of Europeans. Mm -hmm. And some, I don't think the American music scene had really developed itself. A lot of the American composers came from a sort of a European tradition that branched out of this particular time period. Mm -hmm. But of course, then they developed their own individual styles. So I thought something that was interesting, I was kind of looking at the liner notes, and it mentions that um, at one point, he was more popular than Mozart, who is also featured on your new CD. I thought that was... These things come and go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought that was so interesting. It's true. I mean, yeah, when you look back at things that we take for granted, like the solo sonatas and partitas for violin by Bach, Mm -hmm. um, those actually weren't really premiered in concert for decades um, after he wrote them. And in fact, it was not until about a century later that anyone thought to play them in concert. And It kind of happens this way. There are composers who are very popular in their lifetimes, and then they get a bit of a break from popularity, and they come back. And Mozart is in that cycle where he was incredibly popular in his lifetime, but maybe some of his music wasn't taken the way we take it now, as definitive as Mm -hmm. it is. And he has had lots of time to develop um, as a as a revered composer. Virton, of course, has, his music has been around for a long time. I mean, he was writing during our Civil War. Mm-hmm. So when you think about that, that's quite a long time for any piece of music to have various cycles of popularity. Mm-hmm. But I think Virton's music is very well known among Russian school violinists, mm-hmm. um, people who were taught by people who were taught by people who were taught by Virton in Russia. <laughs> mm-hmm. And because there is a large representation of Russian violin teachers across the across the world, mm-hmm. there is a large number of violinists who have played these pieces. But as far as programming things in the concert hall, sometimes that's 
really up to the the orchestra that's planning the whole concert and it's up to the conductor and it's not always up to the violinist to just play whatever the violinist wants as a soloist it's a collaborative effort and you have to respect what people want to accomplish with the whole program that's yeah huh so basically he's like a violinist composer Sort of like exactly. Yeah. He wrote incredibly well for the violin because he was so familiar with all aspects of it, being a performer and a teacher hmm. and a composer who would have played his own music. This particular piece has four movements, so it has four separate parts. Yeah. And a lot of violin concertos, which are pieces for violin and orchestra, solo violin and orchestra, they have three parts, three movements. And it's more typical for something like a symphony, a large orchestral work, or a sonata, which is a smaller work for two uh, performers, or a quartet, for example, to have pieces that have four movements. Um, Mm. So that's the more common format. And in fact, with this piece, he wrote that the third movement is optional. (laughs) So if you want to do a three-movement version, you can. But I personally love how the third movement breaks up the whole rest of the piece. Yeah. When he begins the fourth movement, it sounds like he's beginning the whole piece all over again, but he quickly goes in a different direction with it. So it's kind of ingenious what he's what he's done with this work. But he was also thinking in a very smart way about what it's like to be a touring violinist. He was writing something that's really great for the instrument that was unlike other things that had been written before, yet was a style that people could relate to. And he was also thinking, if there's a presenter that doesn't want to do a four-movement concerto, there's an option. You can do three. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, smart. Smart that's, guy. Yeah. Well, why did, why did you want to record this piece? Is it, is it because it's so, like, that he wrote it so specifically with the, the musicians in mind? Definitely that's part of it for me. I feel very comfortable playing the piece, and... I think it's an absolutely beautiful work. Um, often when I play it, there haven't been a lot of recent recordings of it, and people ask me where the recording is. <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't have one, but now I can say I have one. It's right here. Um, so it's 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 fun. When you have a piece that you really love, it's fun to get an opportunity to record it and have people hear it who might not otherwise have heard it. But mm-hmm. I think for me, it's a little bit selfish. I've been playing this piece for so long, since I was 10. So 25 years now, it's been part of my repertoire. And I didn't just learn it when I was 10 and then stop playing it. I've continued to play it in between other pieces. And every time I come back to it, I'm reminded of what a great piece it is. It's very expressive. It's mm-hmm. virtuosic. But Virton was big as a violinist on not dominating the music with technique, rather Mm -hmm. letting the technique serve the music. Mm -hmm. And he's quoted as having instructed Izai, his um, pupil who taught my teacher, not to just play something technical for the sake of playing it that way. So runs not for the sake of runs, sing, sing, (laughs) (laughs) which means try to make it sound like you're, you're singing it like make it sound vocal make it sound natural make it sound expressive and human and I think his writing particularly in this concerto is very operatic 
And mm. it's also very much, um, it takes advantage of all that the orchestra has to offer mm-hmm. by highlighting different tones of different instruments in, in different moments. And so there's just always a lot changing all the time. Yeah, it's a very, like, sort of bombastic, like, sort of big piece of music. And right. I, it does not shy away from what it's trying to accomplish in any one moment. There's there's not a lot of hiding um, hiding its purpose. And I think as a, as a performer, there's something really nice about that because you can go all in. You don't mm-hmm. have to worry about whether this is too much of a gesture. You can just make the gesture and express what you want to express. It's it's kind of a relief in a way. It's huh. it's liberating. And when you work with people who feel comfortable doing that as well as players, then it's double the fun. <laughs> well, do you would you like to walk us through a couple of your favorite parts of the music? Sure. I think one of the most quickly changing parts that illustrates what I'm talking about with with expression is when the violin solo begins after the long orchestra solo at the beginning, which we call a tutti, which means everyone together, um, okay. except for the solo violin. <laughs> I think it used to be that the solo violin played with the orchestra and everyone on stage was playing, and that's why it was called a tutti section, because huh. tutti in Italian indicates everyone or all. And um, so the orchestra plays along, I hesitate to call it introduction, it's almost its own overture or its own solo for the whole orchestra. So then the solo violin enters in almost a recitative quality, which in singing means very free, very interpretive, but it quickly becomes forward driving and it, it goes... The, the tempo speeds up a lot. It doesn't say to do that in the music, but to me, it's almost like it's it's rolling downhill and picking up speed, except huh. the music actually goes up at that point. <laughs> but <laughs> up is sometimes more powerful than down in music. So I think it's a it's a peak very early in the piece. And then there are these chords which assert the violins presence and possible range of aggression as a character. Then it settles in after some runs and harmonics and really high notes. It settles into this um, sort of uh, drifting but energetic part in the in the solo violin that interacts with chords from the orchestra so it has so much motion there he he covers the whole range of the instrument um, within Mm. just a few measures of of writing And then in the, I like in the third movement where it has this um, playful quality. There are many different ways to play that movement. The 
famous Heifetz recording is extremely fast and mm-hmm. almost abrupt in in the pattern and how he chooses to play the pattern. But the indication in the music is more, I would say, more more phrased, more lyrical, more lilting. Um, and by phrased, I don't mean the way that the person is playing it. I mean the way it's put together on the page. It's yeah. more like kind of relaxed sentences, but it's still playful. It still has these um, offbeat chords from the orchestra. And it can be very confusing to play it because what you think of as the one in the bar, it's actually in three, but it doesn't necessarily sound like it's in three. Mm -hmm. So you have to remember where you are in the rhythm and actually it's like every two measures every so often there there's a chord from the orchestra so it's it's like you have to think in two different directions at once oh, and wow. that's kind of fun to play with as well yeah um it sounds much more straightforward than it looks when you have it on paper and you're no, imagining it, sounds it. Very and you start playing with orchestra <laughs> <laughs> with orchestra you're like wait what just happened where am i so it's it's fun to get really familiar with a, a part like that. And then there are these um, really fast runs in the, the final movement. Mm-hmm. You know, the violin enters with a very march-like theme, really. Yeah. It's it's just like you're in a parade. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to have the attitude of the person marching at the front of the parade. Yeah. And um, the orchestra has to be really on their toes because it's not at all as straightforward as it seems. They can't just play because mm-hmm. things are changing constantly uh, with the rhythm. But it has to sound like it's a steady rhythm. So there's that. And then it, it probably goes into the most showy pattern sort of towards the end of the movement mm-hmm. when it has these repetitive in the solo violin. There's a lyrical melody at the same time in the orchestra. So by the time you get to that part of the piece, it's it's been about 20 minutes, 25 minutes already. Uh-huh. <laughs> and... You know that this is coming, and it's the, it's the end of the piece, but you have um, a little bit of maybe adrenaline in reserve because you know that it's one of the most likely to trip you up in your <laughs> fingers. It's kind of a finger twister. Yeah. And then you have these this technique that I've never seen anywhere else where the left hand is moving in very small steps and very big leaps alternately. And the right hand has to hold three strings down all the time throughout the entire bow stroke. So you have to put a lot of pressure on the bow without breaking the tone. And having all this action in the left hand and this sort of forced, just at the edge of control with the right is is another one of those mind benders, but he knew it could be done because he was a violinist and you know he could play it because he wouldn't have written it as a new technique if um, it weren't possible. Like he would know what's not possible. Right. And uh, so it's 
when you're learning this, you're like, oh, it's so frustrating. <laughs> I don't know if I can do this. I yeah. keep messing up. And then you think, well, he could do it, so I got to figure it out. <laughs> I wonder if <laughs> composers have done that, where they've just sort of written uh, some sort of crazy, insane, you know, th- thing that the musician is supposed to do, not actually knowing if it could be done. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that happens a lot. <laughs> really? <laughs> and sometimes it feels impossible and. I guess occasionally it is impossible, but sometimes it forces you as a player to find a new way to approach that particular technique. Like the old ways don't work. Yeah. And you have to figure out like maybe a new fingering structure or you have to figure out a different way of not... Well, of holding the instrument, but not in a very obvious way to the audience, but maybe you just have to reset your hand position a bit or put more priority on certain motions to to make it work. So you're training yourself to try to do something that you've never done before, which is what you do your entire student life when you're learning all these pieces that everyone else already plays. So you know it's possible. So it's that mental leap Uh of not giving up on something just because it's new and new to everyone. Yeah. I have one last question for you. I feel like this is an important question to ask um, before you take off. I noticed that sure. your violin case has its own Twitter account uh, yes. with a fetching profile picture of it dressed in a bathrobe. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty chatty. So can you It was talk? hanging out that day and it just <laughs> happened to get its picture taken. <laughs> it's got a towel on top and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, Spa day. Can you talk about the moment when you realized that your uh, violin case needed a creative outlet? (laughs) (laughs) Well, violin case will be so happy that you mentioned it without my prompting because violin case is a little egocentric and feels left out a lot of the time, Uh which is fair because a violin case is always working and never gets any credit. So um, I think violin case just kind of decided it was going to It was going to start communicating with the world. Like, it had had enough of being in the background. And it just wanted to reach out, and uh, it figured out Twitter and Instagram. So uh, now Violin Case has has its own outlet, which is – it's – I think its general attitude is it wants it wants to be acknowledged. Yeah, Violin Case yeah. is hilarious and clearly wants uh, <laughs> for its thoughts to be known to the world. There. Yes, I think it's a frustrating life to be carried around uh-huh. and not able to go wherever you want, whenever you want, and right. to always be working <laughs> and to always be like sitting in one place. I think right. it's it's frustrating and anything in that situation would want an outlet. So I'm glad Violin Case has an outlet. It's great that you allow this <laughs> to, to happen. <laughs> well, Hillary, I know you, you need to take off, but... Um, it's been great talking to you. and uh, Thank you so much. Same here. Thanks for being on the Classical Classroom, and take care. We hope you come back. Yeah, me too. Okay, that about does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more Classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org classroom, or for a complete classroom experience, go to our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash classicalclassroom. You can hear us on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and you should rate and review us because you care. Follow us on Twitter and Tumblr or email me at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org. 
Thanks to audio producer Todd Takei Holslander for twiddling knobs. Thanks to program director Sinjin Flynn for his near-manic bemusement at the general state of things. Thanks to editor Mark DeClaudio for his piercing, dilated eyes. Thanks to Hilary Hahn for being on the show. And thanks to me for saying words. But most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>